Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, welcome to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. My guest today is Gopi Mattel. Gopi is a serial entrepreneur and managing director and the CEO of Lifeboat Ventures, a venture fund to create disaster impact mitigation startups. His fund is a venture studio, which is quite different from a venture fund as we traditionally think of one or know them. In his fund, Gopi is solving problems for what he calls the age of disasters. However, these are not disasters as in hurricanes, earthquakes, wildfires. He's tackling the disasters that affect economic livelihood of millions and potentially billions of people. From supply chain software to ADUs that allow people to create resiliency and income and provide affordable housing, which is a disaster in and of itself, Gopi gives us a reason to think about disasters differently and offers the solution of venture capital as a means to solving some of these problems. In our conversation, we talk about Gopi's why, his mission, and why he decided to focus on creating these solutions to global, social, and environmental crises through the venture capital model. We dig into ADU Works and the unique and affordable model of housing he's developing and rolling out beginning in California. We also talk about the difference between a venture capital fund and a venture studio. I know your horizons will be greatly expanded after listening to our conversation. Gopi, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to, to talk to you. I really appreciate you taking some time to come on and, and talk to us today and, you know, just so everybody understands, I am not going to have Gopi give his whole story because he has such an incredible background, so rich and so varied. We're going to include that in the show notes like we always do, because there are some really important things that I want to touch on today. And really with you, Gopi, you do so much. You have such a big heart. You're taking all of your meaning and all of your purpose and all of your passion combined with your entrepreneurial background, corporate background, investor background, and you've turned this into a venture fund like no other that I've ever come across. So why don't we start with your story of how you came to be a venture fund manager and specifically why you decided to focus on creating solutions to global, social, and environmental crises through the venture capital model? Well, sure. So as an entrepreneur, I'm constantly looking at ideas and solutions for problems, etc. And about six years ago, I had a very intense experience, an epiphany when I was visiting you know, part of my company that was in India. I was there. We had a really you know, heavy rainstorm for about four days. And I was in a really good hotel. Uh, I expected to continue working, but what happened was that a day later, the power went down, actually about a day and a half. And I thought for a five-star hotel, they should have generators and backups. I checked and yes, they did have those, but they hadn't anticipated something. The city was flooded, so they couldn't get extra fuel to the generator, which to me automatically meant that every hospital that had the same equipment was also dead in the water, ICUs, oxygen machines, these would all have problems right away. So I was shocked, but I wasn't done. Day later, the cell phone stopped working, my internet stopped working, credit cards wouldn't work, ATM cards wouldn't work, nothing was working. So again, I went and checked and most of the mobile towers that were supplying cell phone signals were being backed up by solar panels and because of the cloud power, they had drained. So the city is about 10 million people. This is Chennai, India. 
And that's about twice the population of either Norway or Sweden in one city. And in about four days, they didn't have money because money was all through ATMs and credit cards and none of them was working. So to me, I articulated this as, you know, in four days, money stopped working. So that really brought it home to me that we really weren't prepared for the problems of the world that were starting to happen. And really that became my thesis is that we're now in the age of disasters. As you see, California has COVID-19, fires, droughts, possibly monkeypox, at least three disasters at a time. And we're not really not prepared. People are losing jobs, people are losing houses, people are losing healthcare. So that became the core crux of what I wanted to stop. So that was about the thesis of the fund. And that was the core of why I wanted to become a venture fund and wanted to start a venture fund. Wow. As you were speaking, I really was thinking because I've talked about this before. People probably heard me say, I live in one of the highest fire risk areas in California. And it's very real. It's not just Chennai, India. Somebody somebody could think, oh, well, that's over there. But look what happened in Texas last winter at what happens in Florida all the time. Maybe Florida's used to it, so they're more prepared. But when you're not prepared, and last year at Thanksgiving here, they shut the power off for three days around Thanksgiving. We had zero power and we had to go buy a generator because we weren't really prepared for that. We've been living here for two years. So that wasn't on our radar yet. And so it can happen in, I live outside of Los Angeles. <laughs> like it's not just something that is somewhere else, right? It is not just somewhere else. It's actually extremely close to home for many people in many different ways. I agree. And I live in Half Moon Bay, California. I'm backed up to the top, one of the top 20 fire risks in the state. It's full of eucalyptus trees, which are basically exploding bombs. So it's very high risk. And last year we had evacuation warnings given to us. So it is, and we're not, it's really the living out of the frogs in a boiling pot, you know, analogy, right? We are in it, you know, where really it's heating up and we're not aware. So I really wanted to make sure that those kinds of problems are paid attention to. Obviously, lots of folks are starting software companies, internet companies, social media companies, many, many different companies. And some folks are focused on the very long term, like carbon sequestration, tree planting, things like that. I want that intermediate problems to be solved, the thing that that makes people lose their jobs, then they don't have money and, and, and they're not resilient anymore. What kind of startups would solve these kinds of problems is really became the kind of thing I wanted to focus on. And I ended up looking at various things, housing. I looked at, I'm looking at healthcare. I'm looking at just having enough resources, looking at insurance, looking at the supply chain, as you heard a lot. Yeah. Supply chain failure, which was part of the inflation we are dealing with right now. So all of these, there's just huge numbers of basic problems society has right now. Everything like, you know, similar to you, I've had a 48 hour work outage of power right here yeah. in a half moon bay. It's like, it's Silicon Valley, right? <laughs> we shouldn't have, we should have the best technology, yeah. you know, and we constantly have cell phone outages whole mm -hmm. days. Constantly have cable outages. So these are all like very basic problems. And yeah. my whole fund is focused on solving problems in these areas. And we'll talk about a couple of them for sure. Yeah. But that's the fundamental thesis, fundamental mission that I also took on because I look at my life and, you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to, you know, come from a, from India, be able to build companies, make jobs, but also have a good living. But you have a certain amount of life in you ahead of you and you see the problems and you see your children and, and you say, oh, you know, what can I do now in the remaining time that I have? And this became my mission that I really need to solve as many of these problems as possible 
right away. And so why a venture fund? Why not another charity? Why another nonprofit? I mean, there's something really, really powerful for me. And I think we share this, this idea that like investing, you know, is the highest form of charity is productive, is a different form also energetically of capital exchange. So I'm really curious, why did you choose to, to tackle these you know, as you say, for your fund, it's a disaster impact mitigation startups. Like why go the venture route? Yeah, that's a really good question. I actually looked at it. There are options. You could have done a charity. You could have joined government, you know, run for Mm -hmm. politics, be able to make changes that way. You can make changes using businesses and capitalism, even though as a term, it's got taken on a lot of weight and a lot of meaning. It's a basic human behavior. You know, the very first caveper, caveman, cavewoman, you know, that traded something for a bead, we're engaging in capitalism. <laughs> this is how we we share values. And so the charities, the biggest problem is that you actually have to every year, in most cases, go out and raise money from people to be able to do your mission. And it becomes a uh, difficult model to sustain year after year. It's so much of your time and effort is just going for that. You don't have time to necessarily execute. And it's a challenge to get the funds. Government, you are whipsawed because parties change. Uh, You're in, you're out. The other group comes along and changes everything you wanted to do the other way. And there are multiple special interests fighting for it. That was also challenging. And I actually have a business. I could have just started a business and done that. The business is generally a very quarterly or annual focused. Am I making some money right now for me to either get to the next year or to get my stock price rising? So venture capital within business had the ability to make large bets and large change, but they had time. The typical venture fund has a 10-year time frame. If I can create something, but within 10 years, I can make it work. I don't have to worry about next quarter if I lose money or if I have some problems, I can last and I can create a really good company. And that was really the fundamental reason where I ended up because of the freedom it offered me to execute. Oh, that's a really great point about time. Makes me think a little bit about the risk-free rate, you know, where it's like risk-free is because it's basically immediate payback, but that flipped around where you have a higher return the longer that you wait, which of course makes sense in venture. And to frame that up to the fact that you need that much time to, to, I think I would imagine really understand the problem and all the different ways that it can be tackled and iterate so much, because even though it is venture and startup, I would imagine that there is government involved to, to some degree. I mean, there's got to be political involvement. There's got to be probably to some degree, you're also working with nonprofits that are in the space. And so you're having to coordinate multiple parts and yeah, changing legislation. If I think about like, you know, lead standards in California for building, like all of those change. And, and sometimes by the time they come through, it's almost abrupt and you have to be prepared for it. And so actually I wanted to talk to you about that because one of the startups that is so interesting to me that you're working on is around solving the housing crisis in California, but in a very novel way. And it's not just the housing affordability and housing crisis, but it's also paired with materials and processes and supply chain. And so there's so many different pieces involved. So with that preamble, can you tell us more about about this company yeah this is a very exciting company that i was able to create it's interesting as we went through the 2008 economic crisis as we went through covid 19 one of the consequences for these disasters because the fund is really about disaster impact mitigation is that people lose their jobs as businesses start cutting back or stop hiring and so on and People that graduate have a difficult time. Things like that happen around that time. One of the consequences is that there are folks that own homes, for example, are unable to stay in their home because they cannot make the mortgage payments anymore. So I looked at it and say, I really would like to make people resilient 
And I also want to solve the problem of young people, retired folks wanting to stay in their area, in their support system at affordable rates. So we really needed more housing. As people know, housing has been a huge problem. So I wanted to build a company around that. And an in interesting inspiration for me was that, and you'd like this, my grandmother, who is a young widow, which is in India, you know, fate worse than death in those days, was a, you know, real iconoclast. She essentially said, I don't care about all those rules. She ended up doing, you know, she had cows, she made food and sold food. And then she bought a small piece of land. She bought a, she built herself a little unit. And then slowly she built more units. And I remember being a young kid and actually carrying bricks and so on and helping build. But what I realized was that it was, she ended up having like 10 small units and we had, we had rent every month. That was really key to my education and to my being able to learn English at a higher quality school, to my being able to come here, to like our generational wealth, like my generation, my, my children, my nieces and nephews. I said, and we are learning about generational wealth and the impact on minority populations in our country recently. So I looked at it, it's really renting is really critical to create wealth and be resilient. And luckily, uh, within the last few years, California has been struggling with affordable housing. And they came up with a bunch of laws that essentially overrode city and county rules to make the ability to create an in-law unit in your backyard easy. And they call it an ADU, accessory dwelling unit. And I said, what if we created a, a model where we could create these extra units in your backyard very simply, very easily for half the typical cost, for half the typical time? And typically in urban areas, you can make about $3,000 in rent. And if you have this in your backyard, if you lose your job, you're going to be okay. The $3,000 will be critical to pay your mortgage. You're becoming resilient. You can stay there, but your family can live there. You can, you know, young people have a place to live. There are more of these ADU units without using up extra land around us, right? So that was a phenomenal fit. And that's the reason to create this company. And that's worked really well because what we did was we have this with two, two things, two principles. One, you mentioned a few of them, the stakeholder model. Look at everybody that's going to get affected. Look at the government, look at the charities, look at the contractors, look at the manufacturers, look at all of them and make sure you create a model that works for all of them. Obviously, the homeowner and the renter. And two, you know, innovate in how you create the business model, but not necessarily in the product because innovating in the product, like the materials, means you have a huge amount of bureaucracy to go through. So we used approved products like SIPs or structure insulated panels and helical piles. And we were able to design a unit that can be assembled within 10 days on site. And we take care of all the relevant things, including connectivity to sewage and plumbing and power and so on. And we take care of the permitting and all of that for about half the typical cost in the Bay Area. And we are having tremendous demand because people see it. People see the resilience it brings them. People see the affordability of them taking that on. So it's been really exciting to see that. That's amazing. I love this word resiliency. I, it really encompasses so much about how I feel about this financial empowerment that I talk about a lot. And it really is about resiliency, this having a, and, and redundancy, like a redundant source of income, which allows you to be, you know, which allows you to be resilient. And I love your grandma. I love her style. <laughs> I gotta say, I love her style. She was and, something. She you was know, something. wow. Like 10 units. She was just like, I don't care about your rules. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to be a capitalist. I love that. But it requires someone to say, you know what, screw your rules. I'm not going to live by your rules because they don't, they're not good for me. In fact, they're like you said, like a fate worse than death. I mean, a lot of people today in America, young, wouldn't have any idea what that means. Right. And the flip side of that, when I think about older people and one of the things with this company and, and what you're doing is, you know, we have, especially in California, we have a lot of this, you know, NIMBY, not in my backyard. And we don't, you know, there's 
they recently overturned that legislation around there were so many lots zoned for like R3, R4. So you could, you know, like the R's being like the number of units you could put on it, but there's only one home on it. And you really couldn't do anything about that. Whereas now that's not the case. And here, here is a solution that covers where I'm going with this, which is if I, if, if, and there are a lot of older people, if they can put a unit that in their backyard, and, and I know that you match the outside to be the same as their home. So it's not this like sore thumb sticking out. But to me, I think about the, those people who can't afford to or don't want to live in a senior care facility. They want to age in place. They can have a source of extra income and someone else on the property that in case of emergency, not that the person living there has to take care of them, but like so much happens to our older people when no one's around to help them and nobody even knows that that something's wrong that they fell and so there's this other sense of resiliency and redundancy around that older population that really needs to have some other form of care and so i think that's a that's a really beautiful thing for an older population many of whom you know have these single family homes and you know their family is far away so that's one thing that that i see as being really important and and a beautiful application yeah, recently, an older friend of mine on a on a board, charity board, reached out to me. Half Moon Bay is identified as a age-friendly community. And she was saying, when she found out about the ADU, it's like, I have this really huge house. I would like an ADU, but I want to live in the ADU. I don't want to deal with a lot. I want to live there. I want to rent the larger unit out for other folks. Right, which is fantastic, right? It solves, you know, two problems at the same time. So I think there's a lot of real possibility here. And we, the company, we designed it so that it understands the problem of an older person. It's not just about the money. It's also like they don't want to deal with the government and the contractors and the architects and the financiers, all of that stuff. We try to take care of all of them for them, they can get into it. And the model is really good. It can actually go further. You know, I'll, I'll give an insight to folks that are listening, if, especially if you're in California, but it applies to some other states as well. What California, the state did is looked at the affordable housing problem and said, what is the best and easiest way to add a lot of housing? And the governor had said, we need 3.5 million new housing units so people don't leave California, right? So what they did was they said, okay, in-law units has been a tradition. So what we're going to do is just say any house can have two in-law units. One is called an ADU. Another one is called a junior ADU. You can have that, but the state will create the rules. And as long as the rules are followed, the city and county cannot override them. So it kind of sidestep the whole NIMBY problem. The local folks cannot make up new rules like it's an extra fee or you need this much setback or any of that sort of stuff. So they overrode it. But here's the magic, right? Let's say you're a first-time home buyer and you want to buy a house and you know average price, even in the Bay Area, you can find a house for let's say $800,000. If you're a first-time home buyer, you can get a loan for 3.5% down. Or if it's a second house, it's a 20% down, right? But for 800,000, you can, you know, generally speaking, equity goes up. So you don't actually need a, to pay back principal. You can get an interest-only loan. For 800,000, it'll be about $2,200, $2,300 per month. But if you had the ADU and the junior ADU, you can make $5,500. That means wow. you can have a house and the extra cash flow of an extra $20,000 today. You right. can do that today, right? You can just go and say, that's how I want to build my building. That's the kind of building I want to buy. So the, the potential is wow. incredible in the state of California. Wow, that's remarkable. You could do you could do a lot with that. I'm sorry, I'm doing this little bit of math in, in my head there about like what you do with that extra money, but that's like the whole point. And then you can decide like, do I pay down my debt faster versus do I build something else? Do I invest it? But if that's that's remarkable about the junior and and the regular. Tell me about the prices because I've seen you know design companies et cetera that that do them, and I've seen price tags ranging from let's say starting at two fifty two hundred fifty thousand dollars for call it a thousand square feet ish or so. That's a lot yeah. of money yeah. for anyone. Yes. 
can cover that. So Bay Area, urban areas particularly is where these numbers will fall. So the typical, like I would say 90 plus percent of ADUs are what I call design and build. So a house owner calls an architect, designs a unit that they want, similar, they have some ideas. Then they go to the contractor who works with them for the next nine months and builds it. So that costs about, it looks exactly the way they want. It fits, et cetera, $250,000. Typically one bedroom, two bedroom, one bath kind of place. But it's not uncommon for people to pay $350,000. Somewhere between two fifty dollars dollars is where it is. We created three models of houses. One bedroom, one bath, two bedroom, one bath, and two bedroom, two bath. So the one bedroom, one bath is about 400 square feet. Two bedroom, one bath is about 500 square feet. And three bedroom, one bath is 750. The 750 is purposeful because there are some fees related to being over that. But you can get a very decent two bedroom, two bath for 750 square feet, okay? And you have to see the model on the ADU.works website. So here's the interesting thing. The, the lowest unit is only 139,000. So which is easily covered by most people's HELOC, right? Home equity line of credit. Very easily, they will have enough equity for that, right? Very easily covered. And this middle one is about 155 or so. And the highest one is about 189. So even the largest one is cheaper than the custom build. But the we designed it very well. The critical part, which is the outside, because your neighbors are going to look at it and you don't want a container or a very modern boxy looking thing in your backyard. It's, it's like 80% of the houses have sloping roofs. They have, you know, they have siding, the standard colors, composition roofs, things like that. We map the exterior to the primary home by default. So it looks like it's designed with it. It looks like it was custom. It doesn't look boxy, et cetera. All at this really good price, right? That's really the pricing model for the units. It's fantastic. Are you working with local government and local nonprofits to provide affordable housing in the way that I think about affordable housing in different ways? There's also like affordable housing for maybe homelessness or people who are displaced for a certain amount of time. And there's some nonprofits that work there. And then there's the affordable housing, maybe like upper range where people just can't find a home, can't find a place to live, generally speaking. So so we've covered the affordable housing and just like the housing issue, generally the, the supply shortage there. What about on the affordable housing for like lower, for like homelessness and people who need homes at that level of society? Yeah. I mean, we, every company my fund starts is going to be what's called a B corporation. There's a new kind of corporate structure. Traditionally, people know the C corp. B Corp is the same as a C Corp, except it has a societal mission. The societal mission is allowed to override the profit motive. Even though it's very important for it to be sustainable, we want to provide cover to the executives to do the right thing. So we have we start them all as B Corporations. And one of the pieces of how to make it affordable is in addition to the supply being increased, for those homeowners that are willing to work with us and we've helped with the financing, we help with the renting of people and terminating leases and maintenance and so on. We work at a contract where they allow us to rent those units out for 80% of the local market's rates. So we reduce the price by 20%, but we help manage those units so that it's feasible for them to have the house. We're helping the homeowner, not again as a as a retired older person in your 70s, do you really want to you know, terminate people and back and forth? We can take care of all of that. That That's part of the model that we are still rolling out. Oh, that's phenomenal. So there's a services, there's like a service element. You're right. No, very few people, myself included, want to or really want to deal with tenants. I mean, this is why passive investing exists and syndication has been so prevalent for so many years is because somebody else is, is doing that. And then there's the LPs, but a homeowner that's saying, I really like the idea of having rental, but I really don't want to want to deal with, especially older people. The fact that you provide that as a service, I think is a really wonderful add on. I don't think we've heard the name of the company though. I know it. <laughs> so it the company is very simple. 
ADU Works. ADU.Works is the company and it's the website as well. Yes. And I have fantastic founders. I, you know, there's a whole model of the fund and I really find people that have gone through a really tough program as founders. And they're actually, you know, they're global in nature, young, very mission-oriented, fun, but such incredible energy. So we're able to, I'm able to give the business model and the guidance and and the path and the funding and the project plan. And they go out, they innovate, they figure out new ways to do things. They do faster. They use the latest technologies. So they're doing all of that. So that's pretty exciting and and. We had a great event this last weekend where this they came up with this themselves. They built a showroom, uh, rented a showroom. They built a whole unit inside the showroom wow. so that you can go in and walk around and touch and see and so on. I thought that was really clever. I think so. It's experiential. I mean, we're like, which is funny because it's right during the pandemic, virtual tours were a thing and people were buying homes sight unseen and i think as we all come out of you know the the hermitage of 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 then lockdowns there's really this that people want to be out again and they want to be experiencing things again so i think it's a fun contrast that they are actually putting a showroom inside here and and asking people to come in and having the experience when we've come out of two years of virtual tours and and buying site unseen so I, I think that's really fun I think that's great so you you brought up you kind of touched on this I want to hear about this model that you're talking about but before we jump into the venture studio model because it's I've never heard of I've never heard of it before what other I know you have a few other companies in in the works what other types of companies are you funding and and what other kinds of problems are you solving through this model Sure. A few of the companies that I'm working with, one of them, again, when you look at disasters, you know, people, if you ask for people for an iconic image of of the Wall Street crash of 1939, they would say one of the images, they would say there were people in the streets selling apples. So what happens when you a disaster hits is that people don't have jobs. And one of the go-to ways they try to, you know, sort of keep their life together is to try to start a business of some sort. And this happened with COVID-19. If you look at the number of business applications, it doubled right after COVID-19 started. So, but we know that in the US particularly, but throughout the world, it's actually kind of complex to start a business. You have to do the incorporation and you don't know, is this, you know, sole proprietorship, partnership, C corporation, S corporation, now this B corporation, what do I do, right? Then you'd go, Oh, they are saying something about a domain and a website. And I don't know what those things are and how do I do that? Well, I may need insurance. I may need some other certifications. I may need to be able to process credit cards. Where do I go? How do I do these things, right? There's 20 different things like that. So what we are saying is that we need to make being able to start a business really easy within a week, all of it, regardless of jurisdiction, because Half Moon Bay and San Mateo City which are in the same county, have different rules for the small business license. So we buy jurisdiction, you put in your address and you put in your information, it's going to walk you through in a single page, step-by-step, all of these elements and be able to launch your company, all of those pieces. The basic product will be available for free so that anybody can go in and say, let me get my thing started. At least it's going to guide me in one place how to do all of it. Such a thing today doesn't exist. There are companies that incorporate, but they don't do all the other things, right? And we're trying to create this company, which we think would be incredibly valuable. I mean, entrepreneurship always is great because that's like the really the largest job producer in the economy. But to be able to do it faster, better with less risk, because if you do it right, if you have insurance, actually you're at less risk. So that's really what one of the companies is. The other one that we are doing, we're working with a partner is supply chain. So we're trying to create a software that allows shipping departments to schedule their shipping from, let's say, a town in China to the port via a ship and on a container in a truck on this side, all of those things online very easily, almost like if you did Google Flights that easily. But just like Google Flights, we want to add 
carbon dioxide emissions to it. So you assess that as part of your job, which is part of the environmental societal governance imperatives that a lot of businesses have, right? On top of it, we are going to manage this database of all of these routes and ports and all the logistical components so that let's say the Suez Canal gets blocked, which happened a couple of years ago, we can immediately tell our customers, look, if you haven't shipped yet out of the port, you have an opportunity to reschedule before and you have, because everything will be under great demand, right? So those are a couple of companies that we're starting because now we're trying to solve supply chain related to disaster problem, right? It's like these kind of companies and I have a few more that perhaps we'll talk about another time. I love all of these ideas. When I think about disaster um, impact mitigation, I think I naturally go to environmental, right? I, for some reason, that's I think of environmental. But you're talking about something so much broader in terms of like human disaster, a human economic disaster, livelihood disaster mitigation impact. And it's a broad concept. It, it broadens my horizons to think about this. Because, and I hope it does for others that are hearing this and will go look you up because I think unless we're exposed to hearing this from you or, or, or others, we don't go out of our way to understand all, all the different ways that, that it could happen unless we work in that space for some reason. So I'm, I'm just blown away by it because it's giving me a different way of thinking about what a disaster is. And it's also bringing home for me very much my, I would say my privilege, not in like the necessarily like the racial, the racial way, but that too, but that I haven't had to deal with that. I mean, I've been jobless before and I've had my struggles, like, don't get me wrong and, and, and all of that. And so, you know, I like, definitely didn't come from a lot to, be, to begin with, but I haven't lived through that kind of a disaster, I think, economic, personal, and then the knock-on effect of that in terms of like people being displaced and, and homelessness and there's just so much there. So I just want to say thank you for giving us all something else to think about and think about also different solutions because you're finding those solutions and you're you're creating them as well. Yeah. I mean, that's really why I named the fund Lifeboat Ventures. I'm looking at it from people first. What is it that people need? Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the base hierarchy of the Maslow hierarchy, right? It's food, shelter, safety, right? Clothing, education, healthcare, these things, right? What are these things? What are the things that are getting in the way of people getting those, that fundamental thing? And those are the problems we're going after. I mean, there are going to be lots and lots of different things that cause this supply to be disrupted. How, what are those problems? How can I, you know, ameliorate them a little bit, right? It's not always, it's not the only solution. There's going to be many solutions, but this, at least one of them will help a number of people at scale, right? You want to, you know, impact millions of people yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. And if we're not worried about a roof over our heads or basics, like receiving the supplies that we need, then we free up our energy and our lives to ascend into work and production and just all the purpose like it, it frees us up to be creative and to do other things when we don't have to worry i mean there's too many people trapped in they can't get past that first or second level of the maslow's hierarchy of needs because they don't know where they're going to sleep or they don't know if they can afford it or they don't know if they're going to if they're going to have a job and so how can they truly not just reach their, well, reach their potential, but just escape from that nervous system, always in fight or flight, always worried, like the world would, will be a better place when we don't have to have base level fear and scarcity and disaster. You're exactly right. There's so much research that shows that if you're worried about the base level problems, your brain simply doesn't operate well. So much, I mean, you may recollect when when you're worried about job and so on, your brain just kind of circles around that yeah. particular problem all the time. You have, and all your decisions are constrained by that one little thing that's kind of overriding it. So if we can 
move people beyond that. And it really, scarcity is made up largely. We have enough food, we have enough houses. There are more empty houses in the US than there are homeless people to this day, right? We This is not a problem of scarcity. This is a problem of us not understanding and not focusing. So finding these and, you know, at least trying to keep that as a core philosophy and then solving bits of the problem is really, you know, what, what we are trying to do, right? And I really want lots of company in this mission. I want lots of people saying like, how can I help you? And as a matter of fact, within the last couple of weeks, five different people said, I like what you're doing. I want to play a part. How can I help? And it's been great. Uh, it's been wonderful to just work with folks that see it, that that actually see it working, right? It's not mm-hmm. just made up stuff. You can see that you can do the math and say, yeah, if you did that at that rate, it's going to fly, you know, it's going to sell and they'll get the money and so on. So it's right. been really good that way. Right. Well, I'm not surprised that when you have that purpose and, and like you're just in it. And so people, people are seeing it as an energetic, it's an energetic thing really, because you're one is, I think really becoming very, very aware through different mechanisms that, that there's a lot that's not right. And I don't think there's a lack of people who want to help. I think that there's a lack of awareness of how to help and this venture model, we talk a lot about using our money for good. You know, it, it gives us income. Let's say if it's passive, it's doing good for the founders or the business owners. I mean, I love investing in businesses and, and private equity and, you know, obviously real estate, but there, there's something about investing in startups and, and founders and business owners that, that have a, a different mission. Like you said, if they're free to be creative and to solve solutions and they don't have the the false human idea of scarcity because nature is abundant and the universe is abundant. There's no, like, there's no such thing as scarcity. We made it up. People made it up. So (laughs) we need to see more, you know, like I know it's called lifeboat. You're to me, you're also a lighthouse for a beacon for people to think about it differently. Like what can we do differently with our capital? Who can we support that? Just like, I don't want to manage a tenant. I don't, I don't know how to build supply chain software, you know, but somebody else does. And so I want to back that person. And so I love this that you're doing. And so thank you for, for bringing this forward for us. Thank you. Thank you for, you know, asking and, you know, helping and spreading the message among people, you know, you're right. Everybody does care. You know, everybody has People have children, people have relatives, people have friends. They do care about each other and they do want good solutions in the world. So, you know, and you're right. The understanding and knowledge uh, is not there, right? You know, you kind of have like sort of the very basic, you know, go job, get money, get retired kind of stuff. But all these other things, which I know that you work hard at creating knowledge around financial investing. And that's, that's important because it is, you know, there's not a right or wrong thing. This is a part of humanity. To We need money as a form of a love in a way to take care of your family. If you didn't work and you didn't bring in money and your children starve, are you loving your children? Mm-hmm. No. So it's, it's that, you know, it's like you have the option of doing it right. You have the option of saying, how does should this money be used? How should I invest? What should I get out in the world because I'm doing this? Yeah, so true. Well, in the in the time that we have left, I want to make sure that we talk about your model, which I alluded to before. It's a venture studio model. So tell us just to spend a few minutes on what is a venture studio and how is it different than a traditional venture fund as we might think about it? Yeah, you know, most... Venture funds, the way people understand it is that there's a small group of people who are the venture fund managers. They raise money from big investors. It could be institutions, retirement funds. It could be, you know, high net worth individuals and insurance companies and so on. They take that and then they go find entrepreneurs with ideas and they give them money and then they hold on to the stock to wait for it to grow to a particular point. So that's the standard venture fund. And what they do in in terms of numbers is they take the money, they have, this is like the key statistic, they have 
somewhere between a 75 to 90% failure rate in their investments. So really the only way they can keep the promise to return money on the investment on their invest to their investors is if they get a unicorn mm -hmm. out of the 10%, right? They invest in 30 companies. One of the companies should be a unicorn for them to really give a good return. So that's a model that works today. So that's been the dominant model. But recently we've had a couple of other models like accelerators and incubators. The Venture Studio, even though it has a quite a bit of a pedigree, it's a little bit newer in, in that it's getting more and more popular now. What it is doing differently compared to all of these others is that the Venture Studio tends to actually be a big part of the idea, the problem identification, the solution design, the structure, the milestones, the kind of metrics to track, the amount of time it takes, and direct tight coaching of the startups for a large period of time. So that's the Venture Studio. So essentially, the Venture Studio is creating the startup, not so much the entrepreneurs creating the startup. Mm. So that's what happens in my fund. I actually identify the problems, which are well-known, identify the solutions, which some of them are actually known because there's a lot of research about fires and supply chain and so on. And then I put together the whole business model. Who mm. are the stakeholders? What should be the price point? What are the potential solutions that are available? How do we mix the models together? How much time before the first product can be built and sold? How much money? How many, how many roles? How big a project do we need to do? I put all of this stuff together and then I go recruit entrepreneurs. Mm. I go to a, an organization that I didn't mention is Founder Institute where I've been for one of the chapters and a mentor for a number of years. And I, and I look for their graduates. It's a very tough program, but a really good program. And I know that they're already capable. So I bring them in with this little bit of overlap with my idea and say, hey, here's a business model. Do you like it? Would you like to run it? Wow. And then I start funding them. And then I start coaching them, helping them. I'm talking to them every week, whereas the average venture capital may talk to them once a month, but even like once a quarter, right? They just want some data. But I'm actually helping them make decisions all the way throughout and giving them advisors. And so this is the second part of the model. Most entrepreneurs will like take one advisor. We insist on eight advisors so that they get a feel for the world. We will give them 10 partners, legal, accounting, human resources, marketing, sales, software development. Here are your partners to help you build it right away. Here's your, as I said, the project plan, right? And here's the money at these milestones. We'll give all of it to them, right? And we're reducing all the surrounding risk, right? So we say, you can make the big mistake. You shouldn't make the dumb mistake. The dumb mistake, I want to stop by giving you my experience and the structure is really what the model is about. Oh, what a great way to end it. That's amazing about the dumb mistake. That's a whole lot for me to think about as well. And also things you would trip up on because who knows who, would, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know, especially if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm starting and I'm a visionary and like so many businesses fail, I don't think for lack of vision, but, and not so much just on execution, but probably getting caught up in almost this tangle of all the backend stuff. Like you said, you have that other company that you're developing that's almost like a business in a box. And, and so like, Oh, it makes me just breathe a sigh of relief to think that like, if I wanted to start a company that I didn't, I don't have to figure out all that kind of icky backend stuff. I'm not an ops person clearly. And so that like, that is taken care of, but not just, not just something that, you know, you don't think about, but you you're taught and you're supported because I think for entrepreneurs, the, the thing that's most lacking is that we often feel alone and we don't oh, feel yes. supported. And if we don't have the right investors or partners that understand how to support and nurture and encourage and bring the tough love and be there for us, then it can be, it can be challenging and it's a lot to take on. And most entrepreneurs do take it on and they feel crushed almost by this aloneness. It is a true problem and it is, you know, and like one little thing, marriages fall apart, right? They love each other. Why wouldn't founders fall apart? Well, that's a big risk. So we actually give, as part of the team of partners, a counselor. They had to talk to the counselor every week Amazing. just to 
have somebody to hear them out, yeah. right? Just to get the problems out of there and keep going. So yeah, that's really the big, and, and I'm very excited. I, so many ideas, definitely not enough time to do everything, <laughs> but I'm really happy that you gave me the opportunity to be here and talk to you. And it's been great you know, working with you the last few months too. Yeah, I love learning about everything. And and this is so good. I'm so excited for the feedback that I know I'm going to get from from people. So before I let you go, this, you know, what's coming because you wanted to know. <laughs> but so the question I ask everyone, and I'm so excited to hear your answer. It really is, you know, what does wealth mean to you? Oh, to me, it's very simple. Wealth is freedom. I mean, we are American, so we know this word. But truly, if you do not have a certain amount of wealth, you're always running behind, trying to just make things happen. You need a certain amount of wealth to just be able to choose your life. Otherwise, your life is chosen for you all the time. You don't realize it. You must have that particular job. You must go to that particular city. You must marry this sort of a person. All of these are because of lack of wealth. So you have wealth, those choices are different. You know, there, again, there's a lot of research there. So wealth to me is freedom in the very, very true sense. Mm, that's beautiful. I feel that very strongly about the freedom on so many levels. Gopi, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I hope to have you back, you know, when you have maybe another company, like some other things and just like keeping us posted on this journey that you're on with Lifeboat Ventures. And so we'll include links to Lifeboat and adu.works so that people can go look it up. I'm sure they're already looking it up right now as they listen. So thank you again so much for coming thank on. Thank you very much, Arapia. It was wonderful. I really liked it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might've touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.